0: When I speak with a lot of entrepreneurs or friends who are starting their own business, I think they get really excited and it's great to have that enthusiasm, but I want to make sure people are being prudent and smart with their ad dollars and doing the research up front to make sure that they're maximizing their investment and also giving the ads a fair chance. So you don't want to spend the entirety of your budget up front and then, you know, you don't have any money left over for the end of the year, for example.
1: Welcome to Wave Social Podcast, powered by Arcade Studios. My name's Mike. I'm here with my co-host, Mitzi, and we've curated a show for digital marketers, advertisers, and modern entrepreneurs who want to stop chasing the tide and start making waves online.
2: Each episode, we'll sit down with the tastemakers and strategic minds behind some of the most engaged communities and -and up-and-coming brands. We'll pull back the curtain on their strategies and experiences to uncover the methodology behind their seismic impact. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Today on the podcast, we have Kat Andrikopoulos. She is a performance and brand marketing expert, aka the Beyonce of digital marketing. She has worked at top tiered agencies such as Cassette Media and Agency 59, and she's an instructor at Red Academy, where she teaches students the ins and outs of digital marketing, analytics, organic social media strategies, and paid advertising. On top of all that, she's passionate about giving back to her community and runs an awesome women's event called Filling the Gap all of which we'll get into on this episode. Today, she works for a major luxury retail brand, leading the charge on paid performance media across social display and search engine channels.
1: Yes, a major luxury retail brand that will remain nameless. Mm -hmm. We can't talk about the specific brand that Kat works for, but the benefit of that is that we get to actually pull back the curtain and get the nitty-gritty details behind their paid social strategy, what they're doing for digital advertising and SEM.
2: Yes, this is a rare opportunity to really pull back the curtain and get granular about her strategies and her thought process when she creates campaigns, the platform she uses, why she uses them. It's really awesome. So if you work in paid media or in paid advertising at all, this is an episode where you'll want to have a notepad so you can take some notes.
1: Yeah, essentially, Kat is a boss. She threw some curveballs in there. I wasn't really expecting some of the things that she brought to the table, but she talked about even Pinterest and Snapchat ads. And what that can do for your business, it might be a smaller audience than some of these bigger platforms like Facebook and Instagram, but an audience that we might be missing right now.
2: Totally. Yeah. I haven't even explored Snapchat advertising because in my head, Instagram did a good job of making Snapchat irrelevant. But she kind of convicted me a little bit and kind of showed us how you can use Snapchat to target and actually convert a Gen Z audience, which is, in my opinion, one of the most hardest audiences to capture because I feel like they're immune to all marketing. They kind of live in their own bubble and they don't want to be seen and don't want people to see them. So that was really valuable for me.
1: Yeah. Well, this is going to be a fun episode. We don't have to unpack it any further. Let's just get it started. It's going to be fun.
2: Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show, Kat. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Mitzi. Thanks, Mike. Excited to be here. Yeah. So to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory and how you got to where you are now? Absolutely. So I knew I always wanted to
0: do something to do with advertising or marketing. So as a kid, I would remember and recite every single tagline that I would see on you know, the TV. You'd be like, Mom, we need to go buy the Quicker Picker Upper And she'd be staring at me like, why are you talking like this? Why are you like this? I've always been really fascinated by the marketing communications world. In high school, I actually did an internship or a few internships in PR. And from there, I was always looking at the budgets that we would get. And on the flip side, the advertising agencies would get the bulk of the budget. So I was always very curious as to how things played out in the ad world. So Once I graduated from Western, I did the degree there for media and the public interest. And I started working at a media agency in downtown Toronto called Zenith OptiMedia. And I ended up being the second person on their performance marketing team, which was just a search engine marketing team at the time. And I ended up working on some amazing brands, Uh, worked on Joe Fresh, Loblaws, Nestle, L'Oreal, Maybelline. Garnier, the government of Ontario, the list goes on. So it was a really amazing crash course in online advertising at the time. And because it was so new, um, I got to move up really quickly um, and I got promoted really fast and kind of stayed on the agency side for about six to seven years. My last agency was at Cassette and I had some amazing clients. I was doing paid search and mostly paid social for brands like uh, General Mills and Ikea. Uh, And I had a really great time there. And ever since then, I moved over to the brand side. So now I'm at a luxury e-commerce website uh, selling premium Canadian made goods.
2: Yeah. And we're really excited to talk to you because... We can't speak directly about the brand that you work for, but we're really excited about this opportunity to spill maybe some insider secrets and learnings that you have from managing paid performance. So Kat, can you peel back the curtain a little bit and give us a glimpse into the paid performance work that you do on a daily basis and what platforms you're working on and why you're working on those platforms?
0: Absolutely. So right now I'm working across six different markets. So Our levels of awareness are different in each market. And I think it's really important for performance marketers to kind of know where they're at in each market. So what tends to happen is a lot of new companies will want to say, oh, we know that paid search has a huge ROI for us. So we want to invest all in paid search. But if you don't have the adequate brand awareness in a market, or people don't even have you as a consideration... It's really important to have a balance between brand and performance marketing. And I think some people can do this at the same time, but for some brands, it's not possible. So I think for me, I'm always assessing what do I need to do in that market? Do I need to build awareness? Do I need to just get people to the site for the first time to discover who we are and see some of the products that we offer? Or do they already know who we are? And do I just need to kind of close the sale? So they don't end up shopping with a competitor or, or elsewhere, you know, even a counterfeit website, for example. So just knowing your goals off the bat, I think is very important. And from there, I would say I use different platforms for different purposes. So for really getting those people to get to know you, I think paid social for me is the way to go. So Instagram and Facebook definitely take up the bulk of a lot of social budgets for us. And then I also like to pull in Snapchat and Pinterest, depending where it makes sense. So in those markets where we're not well-known, it might be a great way to have them discover us through a platform like Pinterest and know that it might take them a little bit longer to convert, but that's a way for them to discover us. And then if we have a product line that's for you know younger consumer, we might leverage Snapchat and really build that excitement and that interest there. And then from there, of course, Google and Bing and uh, also a ton of programmatic vendors.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. I feel like there's quite a bit that we could just dive into from what you've just laid on the table for us. I want to start with Facebook and Instagram on the paid social side, because I think for a lot of people that maybe aren't as experienced or maybe they are owning their own business or trying to build an online store, their perception of paid social is a promoted post. Mm -hmm. So what does that really look like to you from a large online retailer perspective? What do these campaigns look like? How do you set up targeting more of the, the nuts and bolts of what you're doing on paid social?
0: For sure. So I always like to dive into the platforms and actually play around with the different interest targetings and age groups and locations and really try and assess how big the pool of people I want to market to is going to be. And I think the promoted post... Our organic social team might use that to build their community affinity. But for us on the performance side, we're really leveraging every type of ad unit. So everything from collection or catalog ads to even the boring old link post, I find really does a lot of revenue for us. So I don't like to discount that. And then of course, leveraging the story format and everything in between. So I am a huge proponent of really maximizing every single type of ad unit that's available to you.
2: Very cool. And tell us a little bit about Snapchat. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm not as tuned in, but I kind of felt like Instagram did a good job of like replacing Snapchat as an advertising platform. But you're saying that, you know, some for some of your younger demographics, it works well as an awareness space. Like, can you tell us a bit more about that strategy? For
0: sure. So we actually worked quite closely with Snapchat and looking at their data, and they have an amazing in-platform data tool, which I recommend you guys check it out. It's free. You don't even need to have an account. So you can actually see if people in your demographic, in your region are using the platform. And looking at their data, we actually found that there's a certain percentage of millennials and Gen Z who don't even use Instagram, who just use Snapchat, And yes, it's a smaller audience, but why not capitalize on them? In addition, Snapchat is a lot cheaper in some cases, not always. We definitely run campaigns where it's more expensive, but if you can get some cost savings and reach those folks that maybe your competitors have forgotten about, that's going to give you an edge for sure. Yeah. So what's, what's the, sorry, what was the resource? So just on their advertising platform... I forget the exact URL because it's just bookmarked, but I think it's ads.snap or something like that.
1: Okay. Maybe that's something we can add to the show notes afterwards. But from the Snapchat perspective, is that more of like a brand and like traffic play? Or are you measuring conversions through their platform too?
0: We're measuring all of it. So we're measuring how many impressions we're driving as well as revenue and how many transactions it drives. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, so it's gonna be a smaller piece of the pie for sure, but it's it's yeah. still there.
2: Okay, so Gen Z, I know that they're on Snapchat more and it like sometimes like read articles about trends in Gen Z and how they use social media. Are they an audience that you can actually get to convert via ads? Like I feel like they're immune to ads. Like they don't really wanna play in like a paid to play space. They like are too cool or like, I don't know, maybe I'm just intimidated by Gen Z but in your opinion or in your experience, do you think that they're a good targeting audience?
0: Yeah, I think we tend to keep our creative or Gen Z or products that might appeal to Gen Z very different, and making sure that we know who we're speaking to is so key and really designing for them is very important. So I think don't just roll out your generic creative if you're a brand that usually you know markets to boomers. Maybe don't use that same creative, market different products that might be of interest to them there. And I think you'll see a lot of success because at least for us, we know that they're buying our products from other secondary consumer research that we've been doing. So we're able to target them. And if they're looking to buy our product, then we find that they are converting.
1: And can you talk a little bit about Pinterest as well? I feel like for our audience, that's another one that They're aware of and they know that there's an ad platform, but everyone's kind of scared of it. The perception is that it's expensive. What have you found on Pinterest?
0: I've found that if you take the time and really get to learn the platform, you can get some great rewards out of it. In my past life, I had a very cheap CPA with another retailer that was probably 30% cheaper than other platforms. So it's a great platform for people who are researching. So if you you work in an industry such as travel or fashion or especially home decor, anything like that, of course food, but anything that kind of has a longer lead time, I think people are there researching and uh, really planning for the future. So if you can get them there, then I think you can really drive that revenue for your business.
2: In terms of paid marketing, I know you kind of briefly talked about this in our first question, but... Should all of your paid marketing be focused on moving product or on conversion campaigns? In your opinion, how should people split their budget when it comes to acquiring purchases and other objectives like traffic campaigns? Should it be a 50-50 split or should it be, would you recommend a different ratio?
0: I think it's really easy to look at your budget and just say, you know, I'm going to allocate all my budget to capturing purchase. And believe it or not, I've had clients come up to me and, and say that. The fact of the matter is you really do need a balance between getting that traffic to your site and getting that awareness out and getting people comfortable with your brand enough that they want to give you their hard earned money. So I think the split would would depend. I think 50-50 is great. And I think also understanding that some of your prospecting traffic will actually drive purchase. So I think it it should be flexible. But for me, I like to take a look at the existing website traffic and seeing what the conversion rate is and trying to figure out, okay, how much traffic do I need to generate in order to achieve those conversion volumes that I want to get. So figuring that out and seeing okay, what's my revenue target and kind of working backwards is a good way to determine what your split between demand capture and demand generation should be. But yeah, I've definitely seen it be all over the map. So if you're a more nascent brand, you know, you're new to the marketplace, maybe you want to spend a little bit more, maybe a bit over 50% of your budget to driving that traffic. But again, really making sure that you're looking at your revenue goals and and seeing what you can do from a financial perspective and, and respecting your own budget.
2: I love that. So working backwards a little bit. Yeah. And saying, okay, I need to generate
0: $30,000 in revenue this month. How do I go about doing that? How much traffic does that result
2: in? like maybe speak to us about creative for a little bit. I mean, you can have all the the right targeting in the world, but I mean, at least in our experience, we found that sometimes that doesn't guarantee that you'll get conversions or you could always get traffic. But how important is the right creative and the right copy when it comes to digital advertising?
0: I would say it's extremely important, but I also wouldn't... Discourage anyone who maybe doesn't have that really expensive creative budget to advertise. There's a lot of tools online that you can create your creative for free. Even within Google, you can create your own banners, or they'll make your own text ads even more interesting that run across the Google Display Network. So I don't think you should have a lack of creative or a lack of creative resources be a barrier. And I think it's also where are you driving people? So, a lot of people don't think about the journey to purchase on their website. So, are you driving someone who you want to convert to your homepage? And that might not make sense. Maybe you should drive them to a product listing page where you have a ton of products they can browse through, you know, give them some options as to what they should be buying. So, I think it's thinking about the journey as well as the checkout flow. Is it, even easy to check out for you for your customer. It might not be. So what are some quick and easy fixes that you can add to your website to make that easier? Is it Apple Pay? Is it PayPal? Is it stuff like that just to make sure bring that consumer closer to that one click purchase because we know that you know a lot of retailers are competing with Amazon who does have a very simple checkout process.
1: Right. Yeah, that's true. I think these are some crucial observations. I'm also curious to just dial it back to the brand story comments that you made. I think it's a little bit easier for entrepreneurs or business owners, or even just brand marketers to perceive how they could tell their brand story more through organic channels like Instagram and Facebook and the content that they're sharing there. But can you comment a little bit on what it looks like to share your brand story through advertising?
0: Yeah. I think there's a lot of really rich tools that we have in digital ads. So uh, one of my favorite units for that is the collections ad unit uh, on Facebook and Instagram. And you know, you just click through, it looks like a regular link, or if it's a, a collection or a catalog, you might even see products displayed underneath. And then once you click through, you're immersed in the brand experience and you really have a ton of room for storytelling. So it's almost like you're generating a little web page that your consumer can land on and really read about and and see your products online. So I think that's one of my favorites. And I think I've also seen a ton of creativity in um, Instagram story ads, as well as the old and faithful carousel format on Instagram and Facebook. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I have too. I kind of have a little folder of saved ads i'm super nerdy like that big time but yeah there's some really great brands out there that are using carousel ads to their advantage where you can kind of like flow through the ad and it kind of it's either like a large image that you see like the rest of the image as you scroll or it's like some sort of graphic that kind of tells the story like part a part b part p part c part d through scrolling. So I feel mm-hmm. like there's so many ways you could be creative with it.
1: Kind of similar to stories too. Like yeah. it's a similar sort of like slide experience.
2: Yeah. And speaking of stories, can you comment on video? Like obviously we know that video was having a moment on social media. I don't know if it's still having a moment, but on the ad side of things, maybe paid social ad side of things, do you use a lot of video? Do you find video that much more effective than images or what's your kind of stance on that?
0: we use a lot of video in our branding efforts for sure i use it in performance as well as static imagery and to be honest we've done a million tests and it hasn't been conclusive for us so sometimes the video will outperform the static but quite often the statics outperform the video from an ad engagement perspective, which always blows my mind. I really encourage uh, retailers to test and see what works for them and what works with one campaign may not work with the next one. So again, going back to the idea of having tons of assets that you can test and learn with, obviously it's not always easy if you are a smaller entrepreneur, but you know, if you don't have that video budget right away, I think it's okay to run some static ads and then Once you do get your larger budgets, you can test and see if video versus uh, static performs better for you.
1: That's cool. I think think that's valuable, especially for the people that are just kind of getting into it. And what you said about even just not being discouraged if you don't have a big creative budget. That's awesome because I think sometimes we can get perfectionist about things Mm -hmm. and uh, just feel like we're defeated before we even start if if we can't do that big shoot or whatever it is. Speaking of budgets, in your perspective, what's a good place to start for online brands that maybe just getting into whether it's SEM or paid social – what kind of ad spending happens at an established brand like the one you work for? Can you talk about those two spectrums?
0: For sure. I would really encourage anyone who's a new business or a new website to do their research. So within Google, they have a keyword tool. That'll give you an idea of how many people are searching for your product or brand. Uh, Similarly, we talked about targeting options in Facebook and looking at the ads manager when you're you know, just pretend that you're setting up a campaign and seeing, okay, what's my demographic? How many people are in that in my geographic region with the interests and other attributes that I want? And once you kind of get a sense of how big that pool is, I think you can do some research on average cost per clicks. I look at websites like WordStream all the time for benchmarks. So they'll, they'll always have benchmarks for CTR and cost per click. And kind of looking at the total pool, how much each interaction is going to cost you and then figuring it out from there. So it's going to depend if you're a super niche brand, maybe only a handful of people are searching for you a month or only a handful of people express interest in your type of products on Facebook. So it really can vary depending on how big your, your interest segments are and how big that pool of people is. So I really encourage everyone to do a ton of research before they set their budget. And of course you want to make sure that it's something you can afford. So I've worked with, you know, really small fresh out the gate entrepreneurs and they only have a few hundred dollars to invest And It's, you know, just do what's possible for you and start getting that traffic and see how that traffic is reacting to your product and flowing through your website and to see if they're converting from a larger company perspective I've worked on D2C brands that allocate 50% of their marketing budget to performance so that's not uncommon I've also worked on more traditional brands that you know have invested 1% I've read some articles that say that the average spend is between 6 and 15% for a budget marketing budget for a luxury brand so I think you know, it really depends what type of distribution channels you have. If you are purely e-commerce play, then I think it's not uncommon to see a 50% advertising budget going to performance media. I've even worked on some brands that spend 70% of their dollars on uh, on performance. Yeah.
2: Wow. 70%. I want to
1: work with those clients. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's so crazy that some brands are working with that much of their marketing budget from a like paid social and digital advertising perspective. But I love it, and I think I think it's like there's opportunity out there. So why not? Uh, but I also really liked what you were talking about with regards to doing your research first and then dictating your budget accordingly. Because I think so many brands are coming into this just asking what what do they have available to spend, <laughs> and then doing it that way. But to really understand your audience and the platforms you're using and kind of the KPIs that you're looking for, I think that's just such, such a stronger perspective for all of this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think when I speak with a lot of entrepreneurs or friends who are starting their own business, I think they get really excited. And it's great to have that enthusiasm, but I want to make sure people are being prudent and smart with their ad dollars and, and doing the research up front to make sure that they're maximizing their investment and also giving the ads a fair chance. So you don't want to necessarily spend the entirety of your budget up front. And then, you know, you don't have any money left over for the end of the year, for example.
1: Yeah, definitely. Planning is key. Can you unpack a bit of a misconception that we've observed, and that's just the difference between SEO and SEM. Can you like give us your critique of both and what kind of role that they serve in e-commerce and, and how a brand should be investing in either of them?
0: For sure. So I think what a lot of people don't understand is they're both marketing channels. So search engine optimization, SEO is usually referred to as the organic listings on search engines such as Google or Bing. So those will usually come in below the advertising. Google in particular, and I know Bing is kind of following suit has really changed the appearance of their ads to make them blend in and seem more native than ever. So even if you google something on your phone, you'll see that there's just a tiny little thing that says ad in the corner and it's it's kind of hard to see. I mean, when they they first made the change, I even almost missed it at first because it's just so similar to the rest of the organic listings. I would say that to have a really robust strategy, you'll need to leverage both because Google and the other search engines, their ad platforms actually measure you on quality. So they want to make sure that the ads that they're serving up to their audience are relevant and good, good quality ads and that they're working with good quality brands as well. So if you're working on ads quality, it makes sense to work on your SEO and make sure that your landing pages are easily readable to the consumer, that they're calling out the keywords, they're easy to follow. You know, there's no tricks like you're not trying to stuff as many keywords as you can in, um, but really speaking in simple language that a Google or Bing search bot can crawl and read. And conversely, your consumer will be able to read that as well. So I think they, they really do play a role together. And I've worked in some spaces where um, you know they're kind of enemies, but I really do believe in the concept of OneSearch where they mm-hmm. kind of play together to maximize your revenue and your results.
2: Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear?
1: Okay, yeah, this is valuable for sure. And I'm by no means an SEO wizard, but I feel like there's some SEO practices that are maybe out of date that are that some people are still doing. Is that the case? Are there things that like three things that you should do for your SEO that'll make a difference and then maybe a couple that people talk about but don't really matter anymore? Or what would you say?
0: Yeah, I would say I would always do your research and actually see what people are searching for when it comes to your product. So I've even seen brands that don't even Google their name before registering for a website or a trademark. And I would 100% recommend just Googling that name, making sure it makes sense. And I'm sure in in your guys' world, you guys are searching it on Instagram and, and Facebook and all the other platforms before getting started. So that's one thing in terms of other things is accessibility and SEO really come hand in hand. So making sure that you are labeling your images and writing really descriptive alt text descriptions for your images is going to be extremely helpful, not just for SEO bots, but also for people who are using accessibility devices. So that would be a huge SEO tip from me. And then just writing good and useful content. I think you can never go wrong with that. Making sure that you would want to read your content that you're putting up on your site and that it makes sense. So those are kind of my top three in terms of bad SEO advice. I would say that, I mean, I haven't seen too many people doing this, but I have seen it in the past where people will just stuff keywords. So some really big news websites used to just like, it would almost look like a thesaurus at the beginning of the article where they would just put every single synonym and keyword possible. And Google actually started cracking down on that. So you're seeing that a bit less, but sometimes I I will see it on the odd news website and I find it really odd that someone's still telling people to do that.
1: Yeah. And it's just off-putting at this point. I think people know that it's not the right way to do things. And then it just gives you this weird taste in your mouth for the rest of the brand experience. But okay. those are Those are great tips. And I think... This might be getting into the weeds a little bit, but could you give us an example of good alt text? Like say there's an image on our website. It's a product image of like, I don't know, like a skincare product. Mm -hmm. How detailed do you want that alt text to be?
0: I would lead the text with your main keyword. So whatever the biggest keyword is for that, I would lead with that up front because you know the Google bots read just like us left to right. So you want to make sure the most important thing is there first. And then I would avoid being too jargony, just speaking in clear language and describing things in a clear way. is great. I've also seen a lot of brands describing their Instagram posts, which again is an accessibility play. I don't think it has any, you know, effect on on SEO, on traditional search engines, but I think that's something that a lot of us in the social space are in the practice of. So why not carry that over to your website?
1: Yeah, definitely. Valuable stuff.
2: Yeah, definitely. So Kat, in your LinkedIn bio, you call yourself the Beyonce of digital marketing, which I love so much. (laughs) Tell us what was your Beyonce moment or your biggest win when it comes to digital marketing or digital marketing strategies for your clients or at your current post?
0: Thank you. I would say... I think just really getting the executives at my current company excited about what we're doing in performance marketing, that is a huge Beyonce moment for me. I think them coming to us and saying, are you sure you don't need more money? And then really seeing the value that we bring back to the business has been hugely rewarding for me. I think in the past, especially coming up in my career in the infancy of digital, a lot of the times digital was pushed to the side or didn't get the big budgets like TV did. But now the tables have really turned. And I think a lot of people are very excited about what digital advertising can do. And I think in my company particularly, they love word of mouth and the the company really has built its success on word of mouth. But you know, if you want to scale, you do need to get into ads. So just the fact that they're recognizing the power of what we're doing is just very exciting.
2: Yeah, that's huge to get executive sign-off and excitement around it. That's something Mike and I have come into a little bit when we're talking to new clients or prospective clients, how to get them excited about this new space, which isn't really that new, but in their eyes feels new.
1: How do you start with the process of getting an executive team excited about this, like for another marketer in another retail or e-commerce company, what's the best place to start? Like, do you communicate it as an audience that you're missing at your brick and mortar retail shops or is it more, I don't know, like, can you comment on that at all?
0: Yeah. I mean, for where I am currently, it's, it's hard to say because we were digital first before we had our own stores. So it was really about having partners in other departments in the business, specifically e-commerce and IT, getting excited about what we were doing. In other companies, you know, when I was on the agency side, it was just showing how efficient we could be and showing them, you know, we only spent this much money, but it has a, a return of five x or four x or sometimes even ten x. That at the end of the day really speaks to your. <laughs> your senior leaders because that revenue talks and it's like, well, you know, you could actually get even more if you spent more money. So that is something that I got really good at uh, demonstrating on the agency side. And, and, you know, my clients would get super excited because it made them look really good. And yeah, I think it's like the numbers don't lie.
2: Yeah, totally. Switching gears a bit. You're not only the Beyonce of marketing and slaying your professional career, but you also run a very reputable, effective ball to raise awareness for a cause that's dear to your heart. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: For sure. So over eight years ago, some friends and I started an event called Memory Ball, and it's in honor of my friend Carolyn Poirier's mom, Jane Holland, who uh, unfortunately was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's at the very young age of 54. So, we came out with the objective of educating people in our age group. So, at the time, we were, you know, fresh out of university, starting our own careers. And we wanted people to know about early onset Alzheimer's and the effects that it has not only on the individual, but the families, and also how society was not set up to deal with very young people with Alzheimer's disease. So we started Memory Ball and since then we've raised almost $500,000 for the Alzheimer's Society here in Toronto. Um, we've kind of passed the torch a bit to the younger generation because it's really important for us to cultivate that awareness and uh, that community within younger folks because we think that, you know, obviously they're the future and, and they might be dealing with this and it's, it's very lonely as I learned for people in their early 20s or even their teens who are caring for a parent with dementia
2: who might be in their late 40s, 50s, or 60s. Wow, that's amazing. So are you still involved in the Memory bulb So I am more of an advisor,
0: but I am still doing some other charitable work. So a few years ago, some other friends and I started a conference series geared towards women called Filling the Gap. And we have twice annual conferences that teach different skills and hone in on different topics. So we did one about women who were underrepresented in different industries. So we had airline pilots, engineers, lawyers, all different kinds of women come and speak about their experiences. And another one on confidence. So we had an executive at Google speak about how she kind of overcame her shyness and really rose as a leader. And all the money goes back to the Barbara Barbara Schleifer Clinic, which is a legal clinic here in Toronto that helps women affected by violence really regain control of their lives. And they have a ton of services that just will blow your mind. So they'll offer interpretation for people who don't have English as a first language so that they can navigate the court system. They'll help out with childcare. So it's a really incredible organization as well.
2: That's amazing. So what brought you to create that event? Like what was the need that you saw that needed to be filled?
0: So with my friends and I, and some of them were colleagues at the time, we were noticing that a lot of the women that we worked with would kind of undermine themselves when they spoke or when they were sending emails. So it'd be something like, oh, I'm just checking in to see how this project is going or saying something like, I'm not an expert. And Tara Moore had a book out at the time that really talked about this gap. And there were a lot of articles about the way women kind of undermine themselves in their speech. And and there's a ton of literature about the confidence gap as well between um, men and women and even people who are from different countries or different backgrounds. So we wanted to give people those skills to feel more confident in the workplace and in their lives in general. So we wanted a forum that was, you know, a safe space and maybe skills and tools that you definitely wouldn't have learned in school and that you were not being taught at work either. So really finding that niche and, and helping people grow personally and and professionally. That's amazing.
2: I love that you're doing that. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I think that's really cool. I'm just listening and even thinking about this from my perspective as a man, but with a powerhouse wife, you know, and a daughter. <laughs> And I think the fact that more and more of these types of conversations and support systems are being created or started, it's just really exciting. And it's it gives me hope for the future and and especially for my daughter, you know, like coming into the business world or whatever she chooses to apply herself to, knowing that these support systems exist is really comforting for me.
0: For sure. And I think some of the research that we've seen and some of the topics we've covered, it's some of these issues don't even just affect women, they affect men as well. A lot of men suffer from imposter syndrome and different things like that. So the focus is women, but we do have a, a smaller group of men who come out and, and support us and and learn from the events too. So that's extremely valuable. And I think we can't create change just focusing on women. I think we all have to work together to create real change.
1: Yeah, well, I can say for sure that I deal with imposter syndrome all the time. Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah, me I'm too. sure
1: all three of us do. Do you have kind of dialogue around that that you can even share with our listeners? Like how to deal with that or how to even encourage each other out of it?
0: For sure. I think one tool that I actually learned this at a Facebook event, oddly enough, they had a a focus called She Means Business, where they invited women for an extra session after one of their big conferences. And they had a facilitator actually tell us to write down all of the mean things we said to ourselves in our heads that day and it was so eye opening and i encourage anyone to do that you know if you're kind of having a not so great day and you're not feeling the best about yourself and your that inner voice is kind of like well you should have sent that email earlier you shouldn't have let that go on for so long or why did you wear those pants you look ridiculous like they sound really bad when you say them out loud and you would never say that to a friend so just writing all that stuff down and looking at it on a piece of paper will really put things into perspective for me. So that was a huge tool that I used to just be more confident and also just be kinder to myself. And then another one and I think it's really interesting because ever since I started having a mentor internally at work, people around me have said that my posture has changed and I and I seem a lot more confident. So about I guess six months ago, our company did a pilot internal mentorship program where they paired up really senior people in the company with people who were more so at the beginning or middle of their careers. And it's just really been incredible. And I think the advice that my mentor has been giving me has been so different from everything that I've read online or, you know, on social media or or talk to about any with anyone else. So I would highly recommend that he's just given me a whole new viewpoint on a lot of things and just taught me how to address different challenges and and things that pop up during the workday or throughout your career.
2: That's amazing. Back to the nonprofit side a little bit. How do you balance the nonprofit work and the corporate work? Like what are lessons that you've learned that you carried forward into each area of your life?
0: Yeah. I think for me, working on a team is really motivating and having a cause that I deeply care about is what propels me forward. And I think it's really selecting the right team members. So in the past with memory ball, we were getting really big and we would start the year off with, you know, 20 volunteers in a boardroom. And that was just far too many people and you're just, you're not going to get stuff done. And then people would, you know, drop off. And every year there'd kind of be the same four or five of us in that same boardroom trying to pull off the event. So I would say really choosing your team wisely and making sure that everyone's skills complement each other and and you're not, you know, competing is really important. So really being diligent who you're working with and making sure that you have that motivation and that, you know, you're all supporting each other has been huge for me.
2: Yeah. Team is so important. (laughs) I feel like we live or die by our team. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think with these
0: non-for-profit things, obviously no one's getting paid. And for a lot of people, money is a motivation. So really zeroing in on getting those people who are very committed and, and really motivated to, address the challenge that you're not-for-profit is trying to address is, is super key. And getting those people that are going to stay up until 2 in the morning with you on a school night and get whatever needs to get done done is is extremely helpful. And I think that's what's led to the success of a lot of the projects I work on.
1: And what kind of advice would you give to someone who wants to kick off a career in digital marketing? You know, whether it's in the agency context or working directly for a specific brand? How do they get their foot in the door?
2: I would really
0: recommend, again, doing your research, uh, looking on LinkedIn, seeing who's doing what you wish you were doing or, or whatever your career goal and aspiration is. Getting those people to come out to a coffee with you is awesome, but really make sure you're doing your own research. There's a ton of courses online. I mean, Linda has a ton as well as Google and Facebook all have their own digital resources and academies. And there's always a ton of blogs that you can reference. So I think doing that upfront work, I would also recommend reaching out to a small charity or, you know, if you're still in school and you're on a club or, you know, a team or whatever it might be, try doing digital marketing for that club. And even if you're just spending $25 on advertising, just try setting up your own ad campaign and really try to understand how it works. Because at the end of the day, you can read as much as you can, but I find that, at least for me, digital marketing is very practical and it's something you should be getting some practical knowledge and experience with.
2: Yeah, definitely. I love that advice about just reaching out to people who are doing what you want to do. I feel like in this social media age, Everyone is accessible. No one should be afraid to reach out to someone to just grab a coffee and whether they have the time or want to do it, that's another thing. But doing the research and the legwork to connect with people, I think is so, so valuable for people who are starting their career.
1: Yeah, to connect first before you're like making an an ask. Totally, Yeah. yeah.
2: For sure.
0: And actually one thing I told a student I was talking to recently was to reach out to 100 people Cause she was telling me she was going on LinkedIn and she was getting a lot of, you know, no replies or no, sorry, I can't. And I think just to get your odds better, just reach out to as many people as possible because you know, everyone's busy and try and research that person and see if you have anything in common with them as well. So on Monday of this week, I went out for coffee with someone who rents their own women's charity where she brings personal care and beauty products to women's shelters. So when she wrote to me asking to me for coffee, she mentioned that she admired the work I did with the Schleifer Clinic. So that really made me look at her message again and say, you know what, I want to meet this person for coffee because, you know, she has digital marketing aspirations, but we can also connect on a personal level.
2: Totally. Yeah, that is so important. So this is a question that we like to ask all of our guests What is a brand that you're following who is currently making waves online and why? I would say Fenty Beauty for sure. I think
0: they're so tapped in. I also love how Rihanna does Tutorial Tuesdays and they just have such a wide range of different people who are featured in the tutorials as well. So I think there's something for everyone and it's it's something that can speak to all people and they're inclusive without trying to be. That's just part of their DNA. And I think you can see that through the the impact that they've had on the industry. But I think their social is always really funny. They're really good at at capturing UGC. So I think it was National Boyfriend Day at one point. So they had captured a bunch of tweets and they did a long thread about, you know, the best boyfriends and a bunch of different guys talking about how they went to and got Fendi Beauty for their girlfriends or girls talking about how their, their partners made them feel good by going to the store and getting them something from Fendi Beauty. So I think they do a great job and they, they really know their voice and they really know their place in the market and and they play super effectively there.
2: Awesome. Yeah. That's a great example. I die for Rihanna's tutorials. (laughs) Yeah. They're so good. (laughs) They're so good.
1: Yeah. That's a solid answer. Thanks, Kat. This is our final question, but also just an opportunity for any final comments you want to leave with our listeners. But uh, tell us where listeners can connect with you. They can find me at
0: Kat, K-A-T, Andrew Kopp on Instagram and Twitter.
2: Amazing. Thank you so much, Kat. That was awesome. Thank you guys so much. This episode of Wave Social Podcast is powered by Arcade Studios. Show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found at wavesocialpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you've got questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, hit us up at Wave Social on Instagram. Thanks for joining us.